0: Father in heaven, as we come to a passage such as this, we need Your wisdom and Your illumination by and through Your Spirit to have understanding as to how this should goad us to righteousness and to good works and to the love that we should share for one another. Certainly these tragic events, uh, as vivid as they are, are hard for us to hear and see. So we pray that you would give us understanding, discernment, that it would cause us to give thought to our own sinfulness and how it should be purged from us by and through the work of your Spirit in the name of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things and ask for help. Amen. Well, brethren, before we progress into this sermon, I want to make some preliminary remarks This is a very tragic account from the life of David and his family. This is real history. This isn't mere suggestions nor a novel story. It is history. It has been recorded for us by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because this account is contained in the Scriptures, and because it is authored by the Holy Spirit, we must conclude, along with the Apostle Paul, that it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Having said this, we have in our congregation some very tender ears. I am sensitive to those tender ears, and know the concerns some of you have raised regarding these tragic accounts from David's life. It is my intention today to speak about the broader lessons found in this chapter rather than the sordid minutiae contained herein. I want the congregation to know that I am intentionally limiting references to specifics in the passage while at the same time I am trying to faithfully convey what I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us from these tragic accounts. It is the responsibility of the elders of the church to teach the whole counsel of God. Even when it is hard to hear, it is my hope that God's message to his people will shine forth with clarity as we consider these great tragedies. I believe there are many lessons being taught in this passage, but I've chosen to focus our attention on just three. First, being that our sins, uh, the first being that our sins touch everyone around us, our sins touch everyone around us. Second, even in the midst of grievous sin, God's plans and purposes are never thwarted. Even in the midst of grievous sin, God's plans and purposes are never thwarted. And third, there is but one hope of salvation from the most grievous sins known to mankind. And that's none other than Jesus Christ. So let's begin. Our sins touch everyone around us. From the third chapter of the Scriptures in Genesis, there is a truth that is rehearsed for us over and over again in the Holy Writ. That truth is that the consequences of sin reach far beyond the one who commits the sin. The consequences of sin reach far beyond the one who commits the sin. In the Garden of Eden, Eve's disobedience touched her husband and Adam's rebellion touched the entire human race. This is indisputable. The Apostle Paul describes Adam's effect on all mankind in Romans 5, where we read in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. The one man Paul refers to in that passage is Adam. We are all sinners in Adam because we are all sons and daughters of Adam. His sin has touched all of us and there is no escaping that fact. There's another salient fact that is observed in the lives of Adam and Eve in the garden that is closely related to the fact that our sins touch all who are around us. That other salient fact is that sin cannot be hidden. Sin cannot be hidden. Brethren, sin cannot be hidden because sinners cannot hide from the omnipresence of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve uh, attempted to hide from God after their disobedience, but to no avail. Here in our text today, Amnon attempts to hide from the consequences of his sin by expelling Tamar from his home. Absalom tries to flee the consequences of his sin by fleeing to his maternal grandfather's home in Jeshur. And despite man's best efforts, putting aside our sin, fleeing from our sin, or hiding our sin, is but a delusion. Sin cannot be put aside by man, washed away by man, or hidden by man. Even if one's sin can seemingly be hidden from those around us, It can never be hidden from the sight of God. We men and women somehow think we can deal with our sin two-dimensionally. What do I mean by that? God's Word teaches us that sin is always three-dimensional. Sin affects us, those around us, as well as God's creation, and God Himself. Because sin, by definition is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. It is three-dimensional. It touches us, all of creation and those around us, and God himself. Not only did Adam's sin have an all-encompassing consequence on creation, our sins perpetuate those very consequences. Our sins perpetuate those very consequences. But with these things in mind, King David was told by God through the prophet Nathan in the previous chapter that this would be the case in his house. David's sins would affect his entire household. In chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, we read, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold! I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Furthermore, David's sin with Bathsheba was attempted in secret, but the consequences of that sin would be seen by all, by the very decree of God. Chapter 12, verse 12 reads, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. Many more things could be said about the consequences of David's sin or Amnon's sin, or Absalom's sin, there is much to lament in this passage as well. Tamar is the only daughter of David mentioned in all of the Scriptures. And she is the true victim here. It's interesting, at the end of the passage when David's sons return from being in Absalom's house, uh, they weep for the death of Amnon. But well, where's the weeping for Tamar? She's the victim here. Sin is never victimless. It always destroys. Whether it be your own life or the lives of others, as in the case of this passage, sin destroys and ultimately leads to death. This is true even in the house of man, a man whose heart was after God. That man being David. So how can sin be overcome? How can its effects and consequences be turned back? How can it be thwarted? This brings me to my second point. God's plans and purposes can never be thwarted by the works of men. As great as the consequences of sin are, as prolific as sin is in the hearts and actions of men, As profound is the reach of sin beyond the one who commits the sin, it can be overturned and its consequences lessened or eliminated in the lives of men. Consider that God had promised David in chapter 7 of Second Samuel that the Messiah would come from his lineage and that he, the Messiah, would sit on David's throne forever. That's in chapter 7 of the same book. We read these words in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, impl- implicit in this promise is God's use, is God to use the sinful actions of men to accomplish all his holy will. Implicit in that promise is God is going to use the sinful actions of men to accomplish his holy will. You're saying, well, how can that be? Just listen. Consider what happens after that promise is made to King David. King David had 19 sons that are recorded in the Scriptures. He likely had many more with his concubines. But 19 are mentioned in the Scriptures. But not all by name. And partly we think that that's the case because some of them may have died in infancy. Six of his sons were born while he ruled in Hebron during the first Israeli civil war. This is the time... After Saul's death, uh, uh, where, uh, uh, Mephib- uh Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is, is ruling ten of the tribes and, and David's ruling over Judah and Benjamin. He's in Hebron. Six of his sons are born there. The other thirteen were born to he and his wives during his rule in Jerusalem after Ishbosheth dies and the, the kingdom is brought back together under his rule. We have several mentioned here in today's passage, but two in particular, Amnon and Absalom. Amnon was David's firstborn son. His mother was Ahinoam of Jezreel. David's secondborn son was named Daniel, and he's also known as Kiliab. And he was born to David's wife, Abigail, from Carmel. This son likely died in his youth because there's there's no history of his life recorded in the Scriptures. David's third-born son was Absalom, whose mother was Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, who's mentioned here in the passage. That's where Absalom flees to in, in fear of his own life from his father David uh, for safety. Notice that Amnon was the first-born son of David. He's the crown prince of Israel. And Absalom was second in line to David's throne, if indeed the the second son, Daniel, had died previously. So Amnon is the crown prince, Absalom the second in line to the throne. That should already give us some notion of potential problems. Both of these men would commit grievous sins and would ultimately die before ascending to the throne of David. They would become part of the curse promised to David following his sin with Bathsheba, and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Yet, God's promise to David to preserve his house and establish his throne forever would come through the lineage of Solomon, the last of five sons born to Bathsheba, the woman he had committed the sin with. Herein is a principle that is taught throughout the Scripture, and most specifically in our Lord's parable of the vineyard workers, In Matthew 20.16 where we read, So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. God's purposes were not thwarted by David's sin, Amnon's sins, or Absalom's sins. His purposes were not thwarted. God is greater than he who is in the world, whether demons or sinful men. And God's sovereign plans are accomplished even in the midst of sinfulness. God used the son of the woman He had committed sin with to be the king in Israel. And not only that, the lineage of Christ would come through that same son. Brethren, we sinners, we make a mess of our lives and the lives of those around us with our sin. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought We think less of the Almighty God than we ought, and we live delusionally when we think our sins can be hidden or ignored. Humility is not our passion. Let me say that again. Humility is not our passion. Thinking God's thoughts after Him is not our habit. Therefore, we miserable creatures are in desperate need of help. We are in desperate need of help. So we must ask ourselves, who can help the helpless? Who is powerful enough to separate us from the sin that so easily besets us? Who can give us hearts of flesh and remove from us those sinful hearts of stone? Who can do that work? The answer is the last Adam. The son of David who has taken away the sins of the world. The one who sits on the throne of God at his right hand, forever making intercession for those who put their trust in him. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is powerful, the Bible says, to save. The sacrifice of himself on our behalf can wash away the sins that we commit. He alone can make us whiter than snow. His atonement for our sins removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And it is He who raises us up out of the mire and sets our feet on a solid rock. Is there any greater mire than what we've just read from this chapter of 2 Samuel? The mire is everywhere and everyone's involved. Only God can fix those kinds of problems, and only that can happen through His Son, Jesus Christ. Consider again Paul's words from Romans chapter 5. For if by one man's offense many died, that one man being Adam, if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. That free gift brings about justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. If your your life is stuck in mire and sin, God can raise you up by and through the Savior Jesus. Cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you, the Bible says. There is none other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It is in the name of Christ alone. Pastor, I'm saved already. I've put my trust in Christ, but my sins forever plague me. Are you any different from David, Amnon, Absalom, whose sins come over and over again? And has not God promised us cleansing if we bring our sins to the foot of the cross over and over again? Why do you think we confess our sins each week and worship? We need to be cleansed. And Christ stands ready to cleanse you and to lift you up that is grace that's the manifestation of his mercy you are his children join heirs with him before the throne of grace and he wants to to make you acceptable in the sight of the father come to him cast your cares on him for he cares for you one last thought Each week in worship, we proclaim David's famous words from Psalm 124. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. If He can make heaven and earth, what can He do with your sin? But cast them away forever. Believe this. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Believe it and be delivered from your sin. Let us pray together.